Welcome to the Monster Podcast. This week, Jay and I interview Peter Devereaux, author of Game Faces, early baseball cards from the Library of Congress. Enjoy. Introduce yourself, your title. Give us like a one minute. What else do you do at the library? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I'm uh, Peter Devereaux. I'm a writer-editor here at the Library of Congress Publishing Office. Um, you know, our office has published books that uh, you know, work to share the, the wonderful collections here at the library. So, you know, I, I worked on this book on baseball cards, but I've worked on books about Lewis and Clark, uh, Galileo, uh, the Civil War. So um, essentially any, anything that's part of the collections here, we, we work to share with the general public in a way that you know, visually and also put stuff in a historical context. So um, that's really what the publishing office is all about. And, you know, I think this book really fits into that. So talk to us about this book project. Well, you know, we, we had published the Library of Congress Publishing Office. We, you know, we our, our mission is to kind of share the collections that aren't always uh, available. Um, a lot of times they're online, but sometimes, you know, there's millions and millions of objects here. And, you know, while we're working hard to get everything scanned and up on the website, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a time-consuming process. So, you know, we try and dig around in collections and, and publish books that sort of share the, the nation's library's collection with the general public. And while these cards were online, I thought it'd be interesting to put them in a sort of context of baseball history too. And uh, there, was an, there was talk of an exhibition, um, so that also made it uh, sort of, uh, you know, there was a little time crunch, but you know, I put together a proposal, and we worked with Smithsonian, who was amazing to work with, and uh, it it really kind of came together kind of fast. I mean, I just let the collection tell the story essentially. I just tried to you know channel what Benjamin Edwards was thinking, and w basically what he was thinking was he was trying to collect every set that was available at the time. Um, in the afterward, uh, you know, I was able to include some of the non-baseball cards. And, you know, your listeners should know that there are about 12,000 cards in his collection, only 2,100 of which are baseball. So um, it's about 10% of, of the collection are baseball cards. So, um, but I felt the baseball cards, obviously because it's our national pastime and, and it's the most popular uh, cards and the first ones that the library scanned, I thought we should, you know, just narrow the focus of the book to the baseball cards. And so, yeah, once I started writing the book, um, you know, like we were talking about, I just became interested in, you know, how do these cards come about? And, you know, the story really goes back uh, to the Civil War where um, because of their portability, cigarettes became very popular with soldiers, especially northern soldiers traveling through the Virginia area and all that Virginia tobacco. And when they go back home after the war, they, you know, they were essentially addicted to cigarettes and, and cigarette production at the time was very time consuming. You had people were hand rolling cigarettes. And in, in 1885, uh, James Bonsack invented a cigarette rolling machine that uh, uh, James Buchanan Duke quickly swooped in and got the rights to. And he was able to crank out then millions of, of uh, cigarettes a day. And that's when the tobacco wars really started in the 18, late 1880s. And that's when the cards hit the market first. You know, so you have Allen and Gintner, Goodwin, um, Kinney, and Essentially, it's, I found it fascinating that the heyday of the end cards are really just two or three years. I mean, of 1887, 1888, 1889, and in 1890, Duke consolidated all of the, all of the companies, and, I, and, I, and I'm pretty sure this is why it's, it's documented in business records and in the newspapers. He eliminated the cards because they were expensive, and there was no need to advertise anymore because he owned 90% <laughs> of the tobacco market by 1890. So these cards just uh, disappeared. 
ironically, it's the same year the Sherman Antitrust Act was packed. So, you know, while he got away for about 15 years with cornering the market, uh, eventually it spurred the second wave of cards. So, um, yeah, so yeah, the, the book sort of just traces that element, which I didn't really see in too many other books about um, tobacco cards. Uh, most of the other cards besides J Dave Jameson's uh, were really more geared towards collectors today. You know, what's this card worth? You know, why is this card rare? Why is this such popular? And I was trying to put them more in the context of the time. And then because of that, I was able to talk about other um, events and sort of cultural um, uh, changes that were happening around the turn of the century. And of course, you have industrialization, you have massive waves of immigration. All of these were influencing the development and growth of baseball. Um, I mean, there's a great line uh, Duke himself said. He was handing a, a pack of cigarettes to everybody getting off the boat at Ellis Island. So, you know, even if they went to Alaska, they, they knew the Duke brand. Um, so, yeah, uh, just all this, all these elements were coming together, and, you know, I thought it was kind of neat to include them in a book, essentially, about baseball cards, because, you know, they are kind of a prism in which, you know, like you were saying, we can kind of view uh, the culture at the time and, uh, you know, what was going on in this country. Yeah, what I thought was great about the book is that it really brings the cards to life, and that's, and, and T206s, but also beyond that, that the the little vignettes about the players. Yeah. And I just want to, in the uh, introduction, to the book by John Thorne, a major league baseball historian, uh, he quotes Benjamin Edwards, who's this, whose collection this is, and he said, uh, Edwards says, quote, to the true collector, the difficulty of finding old American cards is most inviting, and along with the sport thereof is the interest of research work and the insight as to the living and thinking of our people half a century ago. Now that's closer to a century, a century ago. century ago, sure. Um, but that's always what's been enticing, I think, for Jay and I is the chase of it, especially mm -hmm. with such a large set, the T206, um, but also thinking about what the players' lives were like yeah. and what the lives of the people collecting the cards yeah. were like. Yeah. Because that's really, we're the kind of the second, third, or fourth generation of yeah. those people who are sure. chasing the cards. Yeah. No different than someone no, 100 no, no. years ago. No. And that's not that, I like to think about that continuity. And, and, you know, at the time, you know, there weren't a lot of. Uh, you know, and I note this in the book, that, you know, there weren't a lot of images in newspapers. You know, there, there weren't, you know, we didn't have, you know, glowing screens in our pockets and computers. So these were really the first visual documentation of our national pastime. And I, and I think that's really important to note that, you know, for a kid or even a fan of the game, you know, they were looking at box scores. You know, King Kelly or Christy Mathewson, they didn't know what they looked like. So when these cards hit the scene, this was huge for them to put a, a name with a face. And um, they're really just the original um, photo and, uh, you know, chromolithography document of our uh, national pastime. Uh, you know, in their time, what was it like when these cars existed, when you were buying a pack of cigarettes and got one of these, you know, because they were so ephemeral. I mean, you know, I'm sure Honus Wagner cards were tossed on a tavern floor numerous times and stepped on and crunched and, and just picked up and you know I, I hate Pittsburgh I'm, <laughs> yeah, sure, I'm sure most of the cards oh yeah on a yeah, floor. yeah so that, that idea is just fascinating to me yeah and, and I and I always you know when when the more sort of casual reader or fan of the game you know sees the book and they start asking me I, I always make sure I point out that you know at the time you know I mean what, what a set today a top set maybe has what like a thousand cards so maybe 600 to 800 600 to 800 yeah, yeah. not even a, so so, you know, when you think about the T206, and there's 506? 520 plus 520, the 4, so 524. 524. And, you know, I just, you know, I always 
take pains to point out, you weren't getting a pack of 10 or 15. You were getting one, and you had there was no way to – a lot of times when you're buying a pack, it, it could have been a – a bird or a flag or a, 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 an actress it, it may have not you had to know the brands you had to know which ones included these cards it was it would have been impossible back then to assemble a, a complete set whereas i know in 1984 85 i think i came close to a complete set of tops i don't think i got there but back then it would have been almost impossible to assemble a complete set of the tico six and, and that and that sort of difficulty with the birds and the flags comes up today because i know there's a lot of unopened packs that float around yeah and it's very difficult to accurately date is this a pack that could contain a t206 you have to use the tax stamp i know there's one or two people who are super knowledgeable but for sort of the rest of us it, it's very difficult to tell and then you have this unopened pack that's worth lots of money and then you know you think oh maybe i'll pull out this awesome high grade card you know you dream about pulling out you know a cob or maybe a big four card, but then you pull out like the United States flag. Yeah, which is, yeah, no. Which, which, exactly. is, which is fantastic, no, but yeah. you know, you aren't really looking for a bird. No, you were, exactly. you were looking You were looking for a tie cop. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, like like I was saying, you know, the, the baseball cards were just one small fragment of what was happening with tobacco cards back then. So yeah, it really was a roll of the dice. You know, at the same time, I found a lot of stories of, of, of kids who, maybe if they weren't necessarily smokers, but they were savvy enough to, to hang around uh, taverns early in the morning and offer to clean up and sweep the floor. And there, and I found reports of kids being able to pick up 10, 20, 30 of these cards at a time and carefully go back and paste them into their scrapbook. So, you know, that's, that's I just thought that was a great story. I would have done that. No. <laughs> I, 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 feel, I feel very confident in saying that I, I, would have, I would have probably been hanging around the floor. I don't, oh, know. Yeah. I don't know if I would have volunteered to sweep, but I probably would have been down there on the floor oh, gra no. gra grabbing cards. Well, no, and, it, and it's just, <laughs> and I included some in the, in, in the book. It just became a, a cliche of the time where, you know, you sort of had uh, school kids just uh, like pestering any adult they saw on the street, like, mister, can I have your cigarette picture? Mister, can I, because, you know, there were so many smokers back then, it, it, and there were so many uh, editorial cartoons documenting the kid just pleading for the, the cigarette card. Uh, my favorite one is, uh, I didn't include it in the book, but it's a picture of a guy, I think, on a Staten Island ferry um, becoming seasick, and he's sort of like, you know, leaning over the edge of the boat, and there's like a little kid with a lollipop, like tugging on, like, mister, can I have your cigarette picture? <laughs> It's just, it's just really funny. But going along with that, I think it's also equally fascinating. You know, these cards were these were they were giveaways. They were meant to to mm. you know maybe bring in kids to smoke or yeah. be a little bit of cardboard to stabilize sort of a flimsy tobacco yeah. pack. Yeah. But for something that was just meant to be a giveaway, a, uh, you know, a throw onto the tavern floor, the printing process was incredibly advanced. A lot of thought went into oh, you yeah. know developing the cards. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, especially when you look at you know uh, some some of the early end series, particularly Allen and Gintner's sets and, and, and the early chromolithography. But the transition, by the time you see the T206 appear with the sort of halftone and the phonomechanical reproductions, uh, it's just, the colors are so lush. The, the, the players look so realistic. It's just amazing. It was clearly a labor of love going on. Whoever, and you'll never know the person who was manning those plates and those stones and, and inking them up, but they clearly knew what they were doing because they're just... I mean, compared to, and I mean, I, 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 I note this in a book too, but um, even though they're a subsidiary of the American Tobacco Company, you look at a set like the Cantania, and, uh, you know, it's, they're just kind of garbage compared to the <laughs> T206s. I mean, they're rife with errors, and the production quality, they're 
they're trying to do what, what the Tito Six were doing, but their their lithography just just wasn't up to up to snuff compared to uh, that set. Well, I think the the other irony on this on this topic is I think the 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 largest number of errors with the Tito Sixes was just in spelling people's names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was often very consistency in spelling the names, but they were just wrong. Well, you know, and and I, I should note, especially with uh, you guys here, uh, there is an error in my book in the Tito Six set. My, you know, oh, every yeah? book has an error, and okay. I wanted to know it's it's on it's on this spread here, eighty eight, eighty nine for all your okay. listeners out there, and <laughs> it, it's an error, and it, it was it, I, and I checked the manuscript when I turned it in, and I had it right, and then uh, and then it, 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 it in at some point when the designer was laying it out, and my editor there. Basically, I was happy having just the nicknames involved, Rue Boisdell. Uh, but my editor really wanted to have the full name. So you have George Hooks Wilst, you have Hugh Huey Jennings. And so one of these is, uh, is incorrect, and it's, it's not a famous one. Oh, okay. It's not immediately it's jumping not. out at me. All right. Uh, yeah, I think you have your finger on it right now, Justin. Yeah. It's that Albert Dolly Stark. Now, there is an Albert Dolly Stark, and he was a player, but he's more famous for being an umpire. He took his name from Monroe Dolly Stark, who this this is Monroe Dolly Stark. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but it, it did, and it's an error. But I, I thought it's kind of um, kind of apt because you're right. There are a lot of errors in the <laughs> season sixes, so it's kind of funny. I included that Monroe Dolly Stark because he's kind of an obscure player for the San Antonio Broncos. I, I did it for two reasons. I was, you know, just trying to not just include all the all the stars and the big name teams. Of course, the Tito Six had a lot of minor league teams at the time, and the fact that San Antonio had a team now it's kind of cool. But looking up, you know, you know, the folks at Saber um, doing the, the research, you know, Monroe Dolly Stark, he was. Kind of a middling player, but uh, you know, like a lot of these guys, kind of lived a rough life off the field, and was he was gunned down in a in a bar melee uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, when he was 37. So oh after his playing career, yeah, in the 1920s. So I just thought that, you know, like a lot of these guys lived a kind of hard scrabble life and got involved with you know sort of you know some tough elements in in the cities, and uh, you know that's a perfect example of one of these guys, kind of. Never really made it in the majors, just uh, but there he is, on, uh, you know, immortalized on a Tito Six card. So uh, feel bad about getting his name wrong. Yeah, it's fascinating because at the time baseball, and you mentioned this, and it was kind of a rough and tumble sport. Yeah, the players were not well regarded. No, no, <laughs> the fans no, were not no. well regarded. No, no, no. And yeah, it, but it was launched into the American consciousness yeah. as a, a seemingly mainstream thing. But yeah. It, American attitudes towards baseball were negative. Oh yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, this is the height of, of the phenomenon that was called rowdyism, and you know, I would liken it to maybe sort of English soccer hooliganism, except taken to a much higher degree. I mean, even well into the 20th century, you have you know fans just spilling onto the field, you know, getting into fistfights with players and umpires. I mean, it was just a wild scene back then. I mean, uh, the first World Series just erupted into a melee where fans were just rioting. The game would have to be stopped for an hour to clear the field. I mean, you know, you you know, players were, you know, drinking heavily before games, and a lot of that I found was because because they were traveling from cities to cities, and sanitation wasn't what it was and and what it today for for water treatment. And so the managers, because they're like, well, we're in a new city. I don't know what their water's like. Just drink beer before the game. And so you would see that dynamic. So, yeah, it really was a kind of a rough and wild scene back then. 
And uh, yeah, that's something else that, you know, I, I, I tried to take into consideration looking at these cards. But, you know, yeah, a lot of people have asked me, you know, when you, especially dealing with a set like this, why, you know, why these cards? Why, you know, why these eight cards on this spread and these 10 cards on the following? And, you know, the truth is, you know, with so many, I would love to have done 10, but, you know, I, you know, I'm on a word count, I'm on a page count. So, you know, essentially with Tito Sixes, I, I really wanted to kind of have a mix of the, the classic Carl uh, Horner, which I'm sure your listeners are aware is the, the famous sports photographer who took most of these portraits for the series that were, you know, more of a, just a head and shoulder shot, then more of the, the action kind of shots of the players. But I also wanted to, you know, also show that, you know, a lot of the stars that were just coming just coming on the scene around this time and it was just the perfect time for the set to hit so you know you have Matt LaHoy and then of course Ty Cobb uh, Cy Young is still there we really kill her I mean it's just such a great time so I wanted to make sure they were represented and and you know and I wanted to kind of have fun and I have a couple neat uh, juxtapositions here where I have three finger uh, Brown there Mordecai Brown and Albert uh, Lefty Lakefield who were involved in one of the only times a no-hitter, a double no-hitter happened in 1906. So you have Mordecai Brown and Peter Lefty Leftfield going at it. They both throw no-hitters. In the bottom of the ninth, Lefty Leftfield gives up a ground ball error and a run scores. So he lost a, no, a double no-hitter, one of the only times that's ever happened in Major League Baseball. That's awesome. Yeah, so like it's yeah. kind of fun. It like. You know, I, I didn't note that in the captions, but, you know, somebody really gets into it and starts to look. There are some other fun things like that in the book where uh, there are some, some interesting uh, pairings of cards. In, in looking at them, some of the commons are arguably some of the prettiest cards, just aesthetically speaking. Oh, you know, with a striking juxtaposition of the colors and just, you know, how that particular card came out, you know, off the press. And they're just amazing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I kind of go back and forth between the, the Horner, uh, you know, just head and shoulder shots, which are fabulous, and then the action side. Some of the action shots I just think are so bizarre and just intriguing that I'm kind of drawn to those. So, you know, I'm not sure, you know, uh, what your listeners think about that. But, you know, that's kind of the, the – the, and all the, the, the red backgrounds, though, like on, that, on the one cob, the, the, the head and shoulder shots, uh, that's, that's definitely one of my favorite cards in there, I, any of those red backgrounds. We noticed looking online at the T206 set, or the T206 collection from Edwards, that the big four are not in there. Yeah. Given all the effort he was putting in and the means he had to put to set this, this set together, it surprised us. Well, and I mean, it, maybe I would even ask ask you guys this as as more you know current collectors of it. And, and when you say the big four, we're, we're talking about the, the Ty Cobb. We're with, talking about Honus Wagner. The, well, Honus Wagner. Eddie, Eddie Plank. Sherry Maggie with the IE, the name misspelled. Oh, okay, yeah. And then Joe Doyle, which is New York National. The team caption says New York National instead of New York. Right, and we yeah. have the John Thorne, I'm sure. you. In yeah, his, I saw, I saw yeah. that up in the front of the book. Yeah, he, he picked because he was kind of joking about why is, why is that Doyle card worth so much money. So, yeah, nowadays. so the, the, the other one of the four would say a, a national, national METL yeah, right. right there. And I, I happen to like this card. I'm doing right. the background of that card. Well, <laughs> no, and it's funny because I read, I thought the Ty Cobb with the with the Ty Cobb on the back was one of the, the bigger ones or as far as rarity goes. There's dispute about whether that's actually part of the T206 set or not. Oh, because really? Because there's never been another card found with that back. With the back. So, huh. there, so there's dispute. So there's, I think, a legitimate discussion about whether this is a whole separate thing. Right. Just like 
you know, the coupon cigarette cards, it's same, the fronts are the, virtually the same as T206, but the backs are a whole different series. The right, names are right, different. right, right. So is the Ty Cobb with the Ty Cobb back just a, a short run, a totally different thing that doesn't belong as part of the T206? Yeah, set? and if you think about that era of Ty Cobb, I mean, that's the height of his popularity and his branding. I mean, he had the tobacco ads and, you know, his, I mean, he was as popular as Michael Jordan in, in his day. So, yeah, like, that's interesting. He may have had his own standalone run there. That's, uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I think going along with the ammunition for that argument, there were so few that have been discovered. Um, there were under 10 until mm -hmm. very recently when about seven or eight additional ones were discovered. So now it's in, like, the low teens. Right. But there's so few of them that, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that that is a part of the set. I mean, in my opinion. Hard to imagine <laughs> that it's going to be part of the set with so few cards produced absent some other story as to why so few of them exist. Right. So with Doyle and Maggie, the you know the cards are, are, are very low population because there was an error that was corrected. Right. Wagner and Plank sort of have their own sort of mythical, they didn't like smoking, they didn't no, get, they didn't no, get yeah. compensated. Yeah. You know, there's sort of the mythical reasons about why those cards are so difficult to find. Sure, sure. And and yeah, and, and the, the reasons, but you know, from my research, I, I was kind of excited when I first started digging around, I said, Oh, maybe, maybe there's a chance I can come down on one side of the argument, you know, <laughs> with the Honus Wagner, even if it wasn't in our collection, as, as far as why it's so rare and why are some of these other cards so rare. You know, was it because, you know, he was anti-tobacco and he didn't want his name, or was it because he wanted to get paid? And, you know, I, I kind of punt in, in the book in more broad strokes about, you know, what was going on. But clearly what was going on in 1909 was it we, players were starting to have there was permissions involved that I think didn't exist in the end series. And I'm, I'm not sure what you, what you guys think about that, but that's kind of what I read and, and started finding out was. Yeah, well, there's, I think you talk about it in here, but I've certainly read about it elsewhere as well, that there is evidence, I'm pretty sure it wasn't here, there is evidence that there was correspondence between yes. card makers and yeah. players asking yeah. permission yeah. or giving permission. Yeah. And Dave yeah. Jameson, in his fabulous book, Min Condition, um, uh, which all your listeners should check out, it's an amazing book, uh, he, uh, he argues that, too. That you, and, and, it, and it really makes sense, too. You know, players start to have, a, I mean, there's still the reserve clause, but players start to have a little bit more control about, you know, their branding and what was going on, whereas with the end series, like back in the it was the Wild West. There was, you know, players had no, there was no permissions involved at all. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, Honus Wagner, they're really big names. So, yeah, maybe they they knew they were getting marketed and they wanted a piece of the pie. So, yeah, I'm a little skeptical of the whole anti-tobacco, you know, I don't want kids. Uh, you know, it's a nice story, but, I, you know, I don't know. But, but but getting back to what you were saying a minute ago about, you know, the, the big four, why aren't they in Benjamin Edwards? You know, I, you know, I would argue that, you know, perhaps because he was a collector before – I mean, you know, let's face it, the Honus Wagner in 1950 wasn't a big deal, right? I mean, to a certain extent. Dollar-wise. 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 I'm not saying, like, yeah. the Burdick and the Hardcore Of course, you're absolutely like, right, yeah. So, you know, perhaps they were scarce, and he just couldn't get his hands on them back then and really didn't think much of it. Um, I'm not sure if Sarah showed you, but there are some handwritten want lists and yeah. correspondence with Burdick. So, I mean, he was at a pretty high level of collecting. So it, it is curious, but also, you know, there are all those white whales out there that you can't, can't 
Also, at the time, it was rather difficult to, you know, assemble what was a complete checklist for the cards. The information oh, just sure. simply wasn't yeah. out there. I mean, I, I assume Jefferson Burdick had a pretty good idea and was probably sharing this sort of thing in correspondence. But, you know, I, I definitely could see it being very possible for one of those four to just not have appeared on a checklist. I'm not even sure when the Joe Doyle was discovered. I don't think that was discovered until the 1980s. So that was probably just not even on anybody's radar yeah. at all at the time. And... Yeah, and he it, could have gone an entire lifetime of looking through cards and buying and selling and just never saw it. Just seen. never saw it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I would say that's probably it. I'm not sure if you ever came across this in your in your research, but something that Justin and I have been looking at recently because well, Justin bought one and then I wanted one too. Um, there were some original ads placed in the Sporting Life magazine for the cards with the images. Um, there's some other ones with some back specific ads, but yeah. I don't think with any card images, mm -mm. but that's pretty much all I've ever seen yeah. for, um, yeah. the cards appearing in newspapers. Yeah. I, I found a lot of ads for old mill. Um, I'm sure you're yeah. familiar with that. Uh, and you can barely tell there's baseball cards. in them. No, I know. And yeah. I, the, yeah. the, the one I, that's I right. You have that one here. In here yeah. And I, and I love that because it's just such like a, a, a unique, uh, just funny image that to me, like perfectly, uh, illustrates, uh, you know that era where you here it is. You, you, have, you have these guys sitting around the campfire, and you know they're like looking at the cards, and they're you know they have their their kettle over the fire, and then the, there's the larger pack, and you can see like a baseball player like sneaking out of the the top of the, uh, and it, there were tons of these. There were other variations where you'd see, you know, a man and a woman like out on a date in a carnival, and he's sort of holding the pack, pulling out the cards, showing her. You know, it's, oh, I've never seen that one. Oh yeah, yeah, I've like three or four I just did there wasn't room uh, to include I mean marketing drove all of these cards and 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 I argue in the book I think eventually it's why the, the cards went away most of the people producing these cards did not want to be producing these cards they were very very expensive um, they, they cost so much money and out of the bottom line that that's essentially why you and I note that in the book why you have that gap Right around after 1890, 1895, at least stateside, you see cards disappear until, uh, you know, the uh, antitrust suits start winding their way through the, uh, the court system and, and, and Duke's uh, empire is, is broken up. And, you know, Tito VI comes right out of the gate trying to shore up his uh, corner of the market once again. Um, well, there was a paper rationing that went on in the First World War, so paper became very expensive. It was even more expensive to produce these cards. But also you start to see maybe savvy, savvy, savvier marketing where you have people saying, well, you know what, our tobacco products are so good, we can't even include a card with them. You know, we're not even going to include, like, we can't even do that. And so other were like, wow, they're not including cards. Well, we're not going to include cards. So you slowly start to see the cards trickle off. Like they, were, like they were selling something that was so of such high quality that they would yeah. degrade it by including it, yeah it was degraded like no we don't know we don't know insert cards this, this is yeah. fancy tobacco product yeah well yeah. it's like kind of machiavellian to sell a product that makes you addicted to it no, so yeah, you're, yeah, so, yeah. you're <laughs> sort of you're sort of stuck continuing to buy it you don't need to give out these baseball yeah. cards you can just make people addicted to the cigarettes no and, 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 it's not a peter what's the most important thing you want people to take away from reading game faces really just no just how you know uh how important what essentially was a piece of, you know, ephemera, a piece of advertising can end up becoming part of our cultural heritage. So it's just kind of interesting to think about today, maybe what we think of as disposable or not important 
100 years from now will not just become you know financially valuable but also you know part of our shared history and that's what these cards are but baseball nevertheless has really sort of been with our history and as for good and bad has traced different developments and dynamic changes that this country has gone through so and it's still with us today and I and as John Thorne and I talked about a lot you know they're always saying oh baseball is falling out of popularity but you know we found newspaper articles in the 1880s that oh baseball's done it's over you know baseball's not popular anymore the same thing happened in the 1920s and then so there's always new waves and I really feel like we're on the, the cusp of the new wave this last world series is just amazing and they're there's so many new, exciting young players coming up. So I think we're on another you know, wave of a new boom and maybe a new baseball card boom. Who knows? Here's hoping. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, again, this is Peter Devereaux at the Library of Congress. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, we look forward to the next book. Yeah, this is great. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Monster Podcast. Don't forget to check us out online at themonsterpodcast.com and on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.